You're listening to In My Father's House with our pastor and teacher, Mike Fenizio, Senior Pastor of Harvest Christian Fellowship in New York City, New York. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, oh, my heart will not be troubled. I remember what you said. These men, yes, succeeded in carrying out their plot, their scheme to murder the king, yes, but they also suffered the consequences of their evil deed. Listen, the best laid plans of men may succeed for a time, but remember, all of us reap what we sow. You can't get around that. That's one of the universal laws of God. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. Today, Pastor Mike continues to walk us through David's rise to becoming king of Israel. As you'll see, two prominent leaders took matters into their own hands and took the life of the current king, thinking David would be pleased by this. How wrong they were. Pastor Mike reminds you that your choices have consequences. You can't get away from the biblical reality of sowing and reaping. When you do things that aren't in line with God's will, then you'll eventually have to deal with the fallout of those decisions. Now here's Pastor Mike in the book of 2 Samuel chapter 4 as he continues his message, The Trustworthiness of God's Promises. Now, according to verse 2, Banner and Rechab are seasoned warriors trained under Saul and had come up the ranks and become uh, captains in Saul's army. And that would have meant that they were very capable individuals. And thus these men not only planned the assassination of Saul's son, Ishbosheth, but they also carried it out themselves. They didn't want to leave anything to chance. Now, before we move on, uh, I want to revisit verse 4 just for a moment and draw your attention to a couple of things. You know, verse 4 in context seems to be out of place. And it might have been actually inserted by an editor uh, later on after the book of 2 Samuel had been uh, written. And, uh, you know, most of... 1 Samuel up until chapter 25 uh, in our uh, studies where we have the record of Samuel, the prophet's uh, death, have been attributed to Samuel writing that portion of the book. But tradition tells us that moving on through the remainder of 1 Samuel chapter 25 and then also a part of 2 Samuel, the entire book of 2 Samuel, were written by, and again, this is subject to speculation, we're not quite sure about this, but those books 
uh, the portion of 1 Samuel and all of 2 Samuel were written by the prophets Gad and Nathan. Now, I can't back that up. We don't really have any record of that in the scriptures, but uh, tradition tells us that. In fact, the Talmud, uh, the Jewish Talmud, uh, also uh, suggests that. So one of these prophets may have inserted this verse 4 that seems to be out of uh, place. But nevertheless, the biblical writer tells us of another of Saul's son, Mephibosheth. Notice we're introduced to him there in verse 4. He's referred to as the son of Saul, but he was actually Saul's grandson. He was Jonathan's son, and at this time he was presently, here in chapter uh, 4, he was 12 years old, and he was the last living descendant of Saul to be alive, which then uh, could have made him the next person to ascend to the throne. But notice, according to our text, except he had met with a tragic accident several years ago when he was five and taking precautions to safeguard his life. You see, after hearing of Saul and Jonathan's death by the Philistines, his nursemaid and Mephibosheth flee for fear of their lives. And while they were fleeing, according to verse 4, he met with this accident and he became lame in his feet. And it left him incapacitated and unfit to lead the people of Israel. Well, anyway, getting back to the assassination plot of Ishbosheth, the usual custom in that day was to take a siesta midday. And this is something that's even practiced in many cultures, even uh, presently. That is, they rest until the sun goes down or the sun declines. And how these two brothers gain access to the king's bedroom without being challenged, we do not know. You would think that he would have placed guards outside of his uh, bedroom, his quarters. Well, anyway, uh, they were successful in killing the king. And notice in verse 8, let's go back now to our text. Notice what it says there in verse 8. And they brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron and said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul. And they thought that this would be pleasing to David, but we're going to find uh, just the opposite is true. Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord. Notice the explanation. And the Lord has avenged my Lord, the king, David, this day of Saul and his descendants. Okay. So bringing before David Ishbosheth's severed head, proclaiming what they have done, reminding David of how Saul's perpetual, uh, how, how Saul persecuted him, uh, then suggesting that they were God's servants, God's instruments, defeating David's enemies, and they were also being directed by God, which was so far from the truth, assuring David of their loyalty, that their actions were furthering God's cause, claiming that they had God's approval in killing the king. I guess basically they were expecting a reward uh, and David's approval. But notice David's response is to denounce their act. Okay, let's read the remainder of chapter 4. Let's pick up now in verse 9. 
But David answered uh, Rechab and Banner, his brother, the sons of Rimmon, the uh, Beerothite, and said to them, as the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. Basically, in that statement that David used, he's saying, listen, I didn't need you guys to defend me, uh, to take up my cause. God is more than adequate, right? Notice it says there, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. You know, going back to 1 Samuel, think of all of the times that David escaped Saul's attempts to take his life from him. Uh, Sovereignly, God was working uh, in and through David's life, protecting him, going before him, providing for him. So, uh, you know, these guys thought that, again, you know, David would be pleased by the news that they had brought back to him. But notice again the way that David responds. Because his trust was completely and totally uh, in the uh, Lord here. So, assuring David of their loyalty, that their actions were furthering God's cause, claiming that they had God's approval, expecting to be rewarded uh, by David, David's responses to the denounce their act. Let's pick up now in verse 10. When someone told me, saying, look, Saul is dead. Remember the Amalekite uh, back in 1 Samuel when uh, the news had been brought uh, for the first time back to uh, David, the outcome of the battle between Israel and the Philistines concerning Saul's death, thinking to have brought good news, I arrested him, the Amalekite, and had him executed in Ziglag. And by the way, that record of that is, is uh, recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 15. The one who thought would give him a reward for his news, basically that was the very thing that they had, were doing, how much more when wicked men, referring to these two brothers, have killed a righteous person in his own house on his bed. Therefore shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? And so David commanded the young men, and they executed them, the two brothers. They cut off their hands and feet, hanged them by the pool in Hebron, but they took the head of Ishbosheth, the king in the north, and buried it in the tomb of Abner, there in the city of Hebron. So, David acting now as God's representative to the nation. David doesn't waste any time pronouncing his sentence upon these two brothers. And although Ishbosheth was not God's anointed, he was an innocent man as far as David was concerned. Uh, killed by wicked men who were guilty of premeditated murder. So actually he was setting up an example for the entire nation of Israel. Very uh, kingly. So notice, according to our text, they are taken, these two men, their hands are cut off. David's sending a message now throughout all of Israel. Don't be quick to shed innocent blood. Their feet are cut off. Don't be so swift to carry the news. And so notice, they're also hung in a public place, hoping that the sight of these men will serve to dissuade others from contemplating similar courses of action. And so, gang, in this we see the certainty of retribution. These men, yes, succeeded in carrying out their plot, their scheme to murder the king.
king, yes, but they also suffered the consequences of their evil deed. Listen, the best laid plans of men may succeed for a time, but remember, all of us reap what we sow. You can't get around that. That's one of the universal laws of God. If you sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption, right? And uh, there's no way of getting around that. Whatever you reap, you are also going to sow. Whatever you sow, you're also going to reap. So what do we take away from this? Well, listen, in your life's experience, all of the choices that you make, all of your endeavors, just make sure your plans don't contradict God's commandments because you'll pay the price. And uh, God, you know, brings judgment against uh, the wicked. Well, David is now left without a rival to the throne, and God even uses the evil of men to contribute to the workings of his plans. And so David senses his crowning is drawing near. He's been waiting for a long time. We've uh, looked at and considered all of the roadblocks that he had to overcome, all of the setbacks. But in spite of all of those things, David remains patient, just resting and trusting in the Lord. Remember what this message is all about, the trustworthiness of God's promises. Okay, let's continue on now. Let's go into chapter 5, and let's read the first five verses of Scripture, and then we'll treat them. Chapter 5 and verse 1. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron. Now remember, all of the other tribes, there's no king over them any longer. Ishbosheth is dead, right? Uh, Abner is uh, dead, right? They're all dead. So the tribes gather together, all of the leaders, and they come to David at Hebron, where he had been reigning there in the south, and they spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Notice the way they make their appeal unto David. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in, and the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. And so they're reminding themselves, as well as uh, referring to David as their uh, leader and being successful in going out against the Philistines in the various battles that David was a part of. And they also make mention of the fact now finally that David was God's anointed and that they should have never placed Ishbosheth upon the throne. Basically saying that they were, they were being disobedient to uh, what they had known, what God had already commanded them uh, to do. In verse 3, there, but they ignored God's commandments. We'll come back to that in a moment. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king David at Hebron, and King David made a covenant, so in other words, he agreed to be king over all of Israel, with them at Hebron before the Lord as they anointed David king over Israel. And his coronation is uh, fully uh, explained in a graphic way in the book of First Chronicles, chapter 12, in verses 23 through 40. And sometimes I encourage you to just read that portion of Scripture, during which time 340,000 soldiers came to David 
with a loyal heart. They were of one mind to make David their king. And what ensued was three days of feasting and great joy. So the record is recorded first, once again, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verses 23 through 40. I'd encourage you to read that text of Scripture. So now David is anointed as their king. David, notice in verse 4, was 30 years old when he began to reign and reigned for 40 years. You know, when God first called David and Samuel anointed him as the next king over Israel, David was only 15 years old. So all of this while, think about this now, but now he is 40 years old. So do the math. How long had David waited patiently for God to fulfill his promise? You know, sometimes we, we just get so ahead of the Lord. You know, God lays something on our heart. God speaks to us in that still small voice, and he makes those promises to us concerning our future and, and uh, you know, maybe a goal that, you know, we're looking to attain, and we've brought it before the Lord in prayer, and, you know, God says, you know, Mike, I'm with you, and that, that will come to pass, and, and uh, you know, we're just anticipating it to happen immediately, but listen, God's ways are not our ways, right? And uh, sometimes we just have to wait patiently for God to fulfill his word and his promises to us. How long did David have to wait? Think about it, all of those many uh, years. Well, anyway, in verse 5, and uh, so he reigned for 40 years over Israel. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years in the south, and then and six months, so seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all of Israel, as well as in Judah. Well, so let's back up a little bit. Let me describe in more detail what had just taken place, verses 1 through 5. Well, in due time, after careful deliberations, Israel's rulers, as I've already suggested, men of authority, but let me add, they were, yes, they might have been men of authority, but they weren't really spiritual giants, by no means. Because if they were spiritual giants and were more concerned about spiritual things, they would have obeyed God's command for David to be their next king. And they would have never agreed with Abner to place Ishbosheth upon the throne. So these guys may have had some authority in Israel, but they, were, they shouldn't be con- considered as spiritual uh, giants. Well, anyway, they come to David in Hebron to make their appeal to David to become their new uh, king. You know what I see in this? I, I think that there's a type in all of this. Remember, as I've suggested during several uh, other messages as we've been going through First and Second Samuel, that specifically in the Old Testament, we have these types. And in First and Second Samuel, David becomes a type of Jesus Christ and uh, in so many different ways. And I've been pointing out all of the different ways, the similarities between David ascending to the throne and Jesus who will yet ascend to his throne, his God-given uh, throne, when he comes a second time and sets up his kingdom upon the uh, earth. But, you know, in this I see a type, the way that the elders of Israel, you know, are now coming to anoint David as their uh, new king. You know, when other options fail, and that was the case with these elders, you know, there were no other options on the table. So listen, and and this is true of so many Christians, when other options fail, right, we come to Jesus. 
we make our appeal to him as the last resort. When the truth of the matter should have been, he should be our, always our first resort, right? But all else had failed, and now they come to uh, David. And uh, so I, I, I just wanted to mention that. I, I, I see that type here between David and uh, Jesus. Well, anyway, notice the rulers of Israel petition here that's recorded for us in the first couple of verses have three parts. Verses 1 and 2 uh, is based upon, the first petition was upon their ties of kinship. It was based upon blood relationship. So really now they're, they're trying to convince David to be their uh, king. And the first petition, as they're reasoning with David, was, listen, David, uh, we're kinship. We're blood relations. We're all Jewish. So that was the first petition. And then the second petition was David was prove, had proven his worth uh, as a military leader, uh, many times going up against the Philistines and being victorious uh, in battle. So that was the second petition. Notice there in verses 1 and 2. And then lastly, thirdly, notice what they uh, proclaim, and that was God designated David as the one who is to be his prince, his king, over his uh, people. So these were the three petitions that the rulers of Israel brought, uh, trying to convince David to be their uh, king. And in this, you know, there's something else here that I want to mention. You know, in this, we have, I think, the three requirements that should mark anyone who leads God's people. What are those? And, And if that's a desire that you have, you know, maybe you feel that call of God in your life to ministry in whatever capacity. It doesn't necessarily uh, mean that you're looking to be a senior pastor, or maybe you are. You know, maybe you're thinking about, you know, down the road, uh, you know, planning a church. And we've had uh, several people over the years who have come through our ministry, and now they're out, and they're senior pastors, and they've planted other churches, and we've helped them to, to do that. Uh, maybe you, have a, you feel as if you have a calling to be a teacher, and, uh, you know, if we acknowledge and recognize, by the way, that gift, we'll, we'll make sure that we put you in that position uh, where you can teach God's word. And uh, you've heard me say this before, you know, the gifts that God has given us always make room for themselves. So we're always watching and looking for people, you know, to assume those kinds of positions, right? Because we want to benefit from them. Maybe you're a prayer warrior. And, uh, you know, maybe you want to develop some other... A different kind of a ministry here at Harvest Christian Fellowship, something that we don't have going on right now. You know, and you feel the Lord's leading to do that. Well, whatever your calling might be. And in that calling, really, the responsibility becomes a leader of God's people. In my Father's house, there's a place for me. In my Father's house, where I long to be, In the book of 2 Samuel, the King God anointed is finally on the throne. King David, the man after God's heart, is in the place God planned for him. Yet David is still human. And as you continue to study this book with Pastor Mike, you'll see that fact time and time again. David falls to the temptation of sin and reaps the consequences of his actions. 
but he does do one thing consistently. David repents when confronted and returns to the Lord. What an example of faithfulness and mercy. God forgives his chosen leader and restores the relationship that sin had broken. This same God is merciful to you, too, and his forgiveness is just as real when you come to him in repentance. Thanks for listening today to In My Father's House. You can explore more of these messages by searching for In My Father's House with Mike Venizio on your favorite podcast platform. And be sure to subscribe. If you're looking for a place in Midtown Manhattan to come together with others and worship Jesus, we'd love to have you join us this Sunday for worship at Harvest Christian Fellowship. You'll find directions and service times at harvestnyc.org. If this broadcast is an encouragement to you, would you consider supporting us? If you feel led, we're thankful for any financial support. In fact, you can donate securely on our website. Again, that's harvestnyc.org. Thanks for partnering with us in this way. That's all for today. Tune in next time for more on In My Father's House.